Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome back. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Focus Compounding, Andrew Kuhn. Focus Compounding, Jeffrey Gannon. How's it going, Jeff? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If you are not subscribed to Jeff's free free weekly gazette go to focuscompoundinggazette.com and make sure you get on that list uh you'll get an email from jeff uh once a week monday yes. morning yes and it'll have a st- at least one stock idea some recently have had two stock ideas and it has something from you in there too that's right all for free so be sure to check that out also if you're not following me on twitter be sure to give me a follow at Focus Compound. Tweet, I tweet out content all the time. Um, and then when we go over questions like we're going to be going over today, you could also ask questions of me. So uh, be sure to check me out there. Uh, so today is, what's today? Uh, July 30th. NACO reported earnings, or is it the first today? Whatever, it doesn't matter. But NACO, <laughs> they reported earnings yesterday. And, yes, correct. Uh, they reported the yesterday. And the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, NACO mm-hmm. Industries, a stock that you've written about a lot. And then obviously everyone listening pretty much knows that um, we own that stock for our clients. Um, and a client, or not a client, an individual asked on Twitter, said, what do you guys think of the first half of NACO's year like how, how do you think they're doing for the first half of the year they just reported oh. uh, q2 earnings yeah so maybe give a, a little snapshot on that uh good i mean royalties went up a lot and then tons of coal sold went down somewhat i think we talked uh offline we talked off air um about how you were asking me what i thought about some things and this things that i said were just for this quarter the only things were that maybe royalties were a bit higher than i expected mm-hmm. and tons of coal were a bit lower especially with the guy sort of guidance that they give for the future sound like it would be uh fairly low so the coal business won't have as much volume as i was expecting for this year royalties very high um but we knew that from the first quarter yeah um and so yeah and the huge change in the company is that you know probably at this point last year two-thirds of their earnings probably came from coal and this year two-thirds probably comes from natural gas now natural gas royalties Mm -hmm. um i don't remember if they changed language saying that they would consider uh changes to the asset base meaning like buying other things that might have royalties uh, if that's new this quarter or last quarter, but that was included in this quarter's press release, so that that is different Talking from last reserves. year, certainly. Yeah, that yeah. they might buy reserves. Yeah, um, I mean that's not exactly what they said, but that's what I'm uh, inferred from that. Yeah, um, stock was up a little bit before, didn't do anything that I know of since the reported quarter, and isn't that different from where it ended a few days after last quarter? So, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, the way I viewed it, it wasn't like a. It was just kind of like a business as usual quarter is the way that yeah. I thought about it. Yeah, I mean, it. the first quarter was the one that would have uh, changed the market's perception of it or whatever. Yeah. This one, they basically told you that royalties were going to keep going up quarter over last year quarter each year. Uh, each um, quarter would be higher than a year ago quarter, but that it would be at a lower rate 
than yeah. the first quarter. Now, actually, it was at a really high rate for the second quarter, so I imply that I uh, assume that means that they're saying that the third and fourth quarter will be at a much lower rate of royalty growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the year, it'll be up a lot. And as we said, the PE, despite the price increase, hasn't um, increased at all. Yeah, they've earned about, I think, $3.30 mm-hmm. so far in the year. So they're still on track to probably earn 7 to $8 a share. Yeah, and so a while back, I think I said, based on the first quarter, that you can assume they'll earn between they're telling you they'll earn between six and nine yeah they're still in that yeah range yeah. so it's still trading at like what seven to eight times earnings yeah it was Full 50 something yeah, yeah, very, yeah very low cheap. 50s yeah. yeah um i did a whole podcast on it yeah uh, so not on this podcast but i did a whole interview uh you tweeted that out i, I think did. recently yeah. yeah so that's a really good one to listen to because i talk about naco for like uh 30 minutes and that was after the first quarter but not the second but since barely anything changed with the second quarter what i said in that podcast is pretty much the same and the price was pretty much the same at that podcast yeah. so yeah definitely go and check that is that the intelligent investing podcast yeah, yeah yeah so if you go to the intelligent investing podcast look for my name or look for naco um that's how you'll yeah. find it and it's probably 30 minutes long or something and it's all about naco much more detail than we've yeah. ever talked about on this podcast so so far though you still like the company still feel business as usual yeah I feel it's the same as a quarter ago. The price is pretty much the same, and it's done what I expected. Yeah. yeah. And you still think it's very undervalued? I do think it's very undervalued, yeah. I mean, there are risks, obviously. It's, this is all coming from coal and natural gas. Yeah. So each of them have their own cyclical sorts of things. Coal has a secular long-term decline possibility, and um, natural gas in Utica, you know, is a large part of this company now is going to be natural gas in Utica. Yeah, I wonder if the market's going to value it differently because it the should, majority yeah. of the earnings do come yeah, from Yeah, over time, now. it should attract different shareholder base and everything yeah. from that, yeah. Um, because although it's not a natural gas company, technically, you know, um, it's going to fall into that category. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it should attract a whole different group of, you know, energy-type investors, yeah. Cool. Um, let's see. Next question. When is a good time to exit an investment? Oh, when you made a mistake. Yeah. From buying in the first place. Uh-huh. That's the reason. There are other reasons. We've sold some things. So that's on the downside. So when you when you think you made a mistake. That's almost always why. Yeah. Uh, so, the I mean, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's not almost always that I made a mistake and I sold. <laughs> um, the other reason is to replace it with a stock you like better, you which is idea. actually the most common yeah, the yeah. most common reason. But the reason to sell just to hold cash is you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it would depend on your size as an investor and stuff, some of this too. It's really, you don't have to sell anything in preparation for buying things really as a really small investor. As you get bigger and you're managing money for other people and stuff, then sometimes you might need to keep a little cash around and stuff. So sometimes you might sell things because you think you're going to buy something soon. Yeah. Um, I'll, by the time this comes out, have already done a letter to clients that'll be talking about that fact about selling because we see opportunities to buy other stuff. But it'll just sit in cash for a little while until mm-hmm. that happens. But as an individual investor, you don't need to do that. You can sell and then immediately buy what you want. So you can be 100% invested. Um, and you wrote an article once about have any of your sell decisions added or detracted from uh, right. your performance and how you concluded that when you sold a stock simply for the case of just raising cash, um, it just wasn't worth it as opposed yeah. to just being fully invested all the time and only selling a stock when you want to replace it with a new idea that you like more. Yeah. If I was right about the business, um, then it wasn't a good decision to sell. Now, 
that it's just been luck or whatever that the kinds of stocks I bought or whatever haven't gone to insane valuations usually. Um, I talked once, uh, several times before about I bought FICO and sold it in like a year or something. It went up a lot. I sold it. If I kept it for 10 years, that would eventually become a problem because the PE got to be 30 or 40 times or something. So it would have gone to a crazy valuation. That's the sort of thing Buffett faced with like Coke and Gillette and things mm -hmm. like that in the late 90s. Um, but aside from like a really crazy valuation, no. If you buy it at 13 and times earnings or something and it rises to 30 times earnings, usually you can hold it through that time and just buy when you have something better to, to buy it with, it, to, to buy, sell when you have something better to buy. Um, I don't think you have to worry, oh, is this something I need to sell at 15 times, 20 times, 25 times? You know, it's not that specific that way. Um, if you're in the right business and you don't have a better idea, stay in the business you know well and that it, you know is the right one. Yeah. Um, but making a mistake, yeah. And I've sold when for that before. The biggest reason is like you misunderstood the predictability of the business, the especially the um, uh, competitive position. Although the most common one for me selling would be a change in capital allocation. So that by far is the most yeah. common. And something if you see something suddenly drop off the watch list look into cap allocation because a lot of times that's why the companies change something about their strategy mm -hmm. and so then that's uh why i sold or something and we did something where we talked about majestic wine one time or yeah, something where yeah. i looked at and stuff and then they bought like an internet wine company and stuff and then that just was off the watch list right mm -hmm. so that kind of thing happens a lot where they go into a different business or whatever acquire different things you know that's the most common reason for for selling yeah cool uh next question is klxe a buy at the current price and we talked yeah. i don't know if we talked about it on the podcast um i know we privately talked about yeah. it we looked at it when it was being spun off um and it's currently trading at 13 dollars and 59 cents we were talking on the way here you said the last time you looked at it, it was like 22 dollars yeah last time share. i studied it up on it yeah. whether i buy it or not was at a 22 dollars yeah. share and when the, when the company originally was spun off it it sounded pretty great i mean the company was gonna spin off with uh net cash no debt mm -hmm. um, for like what five times EBITDA or something like yeah. incredibly cheap. And then when they actually and, and the management was being compensated uh, from equity within the company, completely in equity. Yeah, um, their track record is great. I think mm -hmm. they, they're straight money makers. Past three companies that they've ran, they've yep. sold. Um, so kind of had mm -hmm. all of this. The stars were aligned. Um, yeah. And then they spun off, and then they announced that they were raising a bunch of debt. To buy more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even lower EVD EBITDA ratios than yeah. themselves. Yeah. And they should stock to do that and stuff. So they've made acquisitions since then. So it's not a surprise what they've done and how aggressive they've been. So this is a spinoff of a spinoff. So BE yeah. Aerospace was the original company. They spun off into something called KLXI. Yeah. And now this is KLXE. Uh, KLXI, what happened was that Boeing wanted to buy the company for the aerospace. It did not want to buy the energy. Mm -hmm. Or if you read the details on the deal management had a higher valuation on the energy company than other people were willing to buy it yeah. for at least if they also take the aerospace maybe if you sold them off in two separate deals or something you could work it out but you can read the background to that deal in the klxi uh, sec filings which are still there the sec keeps up filings from companies that no longer are around mm -hmm. and you can uh read in the proxy thing uh you know they're they're identified as like um Company A, Company B, Company C. Yeah. They don't say who they are, except I think Boeing because that was public. But um, you can see who offered what, under what terms to buy it out, and, and the um, energy part of it, and uh, how they thought of it, things like that, and why management didn't take that deal. Um, it's leveraged now. It's cheap. It's cyclical, and risky that way. Um, I definitely think it's the Joel Greenblatt 
uh, value investment type thing. Sure. And it definitely, of the spinoffs that I've seen, it looks like one of the most interesting. Uh, I don't know how well it works for the kinds of things that we normally buy. It's definitely a lot more volatile than what we tend to buy. A lot more levered than yeah, what we Yeah, and a much, it's a real commodity type thing, really, really cyclical. Um, it's not unusual for them to double their earnings in one year and then be down 50% the next year. But they do things like some of their work involves completions of wells and things like that. So there's other things too, but that stuff is obviously very cyclical. Um, so we're talking about in the United States, uh, oil field services that has to do with, um, so only in the U.S. And uh, yeah, it's a, a different industry than what we normally buy mm-hmm. into and stuff like that. But yeah, it looks very cheap. Obviously, on an EVD but not type basis, it looks very, very cheap. Yeah. Does it get you more interested um, with it trading around thirteen dollars? Like if then you were running your or own, something, yeah. If you're running your own personal money, do you think? Yeah, you def- look, definitely. You, it's more attractive at two thirds the price. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, it's not two thirds the enterprise value. It's two thirds the market cap. So because of that debt, yeah. yeah. Would you be more interested in it though now if you? I understand that it's small. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if you're running your own personal money instead of having to find stocks for clients. Maybe, but even for clients, I'm interested in. It. I'm watching it. Yeah. Uh, if the markets were to decline a lot, or especially energy-related things, people really got um, put off that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you were to enter a recession or something like that, if you have a company with a fair amount of debt and uh, tied to energy stuff that stock can go down a lot. Sure. So it can be, you can get a real opportunity to buy something cheap when that happens. I mean, any of these companies that have a lot of debt and stuff, you'd be surprised what can happen to them in the slightest recession or something in terms of how their stock prices will go down when there starts to be fear about that. Because right now there's no fear about anything that has a lot of debt. There's no problems um, handling that debt, you know. Um, but in a different situation economically, yeah. That would it was just the it's the kind of company that's very economically sensitive, so it would be one of the first things to turn down in a big way, and I guess it already has turned down. Yeah. Um, but it's the kind of thing that you might get offered at a really good price um, temporarily, and those that's the time to buy these companies that are uh, so cyclical and stuff is at a bad time for the in the cycle for them, and a bad time in terms of their popularity as a stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. I don't know that it was that unpopular as a, like initially as a spinoff. It mm-hmm. definitely got talked about. A lot by value investors. Yeah, it was right um, up a lot. On, uh, it checks a lot every box that Greenblatt talks about, right? Yeah, yeah. Management's compensated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of the redhead stepchild. Yeah, the I mean, deal. The, in terms of the deal that happened, ninety nope. percent. So I'm saying it's a spinoff. That's not really exactly what it is. It's what it was a spinoff, but ninety percent of the company was being bought by sure. Boeing. Yeah. So it's a combination there where it's not your usual spinoff. It's even less likely that the people who'd be selling out to Boeing for cash and stuff would want that. Yeah. And obviously, arbitragers came in and bought things by then. So it probably didn't have much of any shareholder base when by the time it was spun off. And they. Um if you think about it too, management clearly thought that the company was undervalued yep. because they got a bunch of offers from people prior to the actual spinoff. Yeah, management and could have just retired too yeah. in terms of age and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, so it could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They obviously management likes it a lot. They took their compensation all in stock, did yeah. that, went bet bet even more in terms of like taking on debt, issuing stock, whatever, to do more deals with other companies around. So they only took the country themselves, right? Yeah. Um, but they did it at valuations, which in terms of the EVD, but I would say uh, made it even cheaper. They weren't paying more for, a, they weren't Empire Building buying these other things at prices that were higher than their own price. Um, they were buying more and more stuff at low EBITDA, EBITDA. But obviously people in the industry and stuff must be comfortable with the idea um, that companies shouldn't trade at a high EBITDA, EBITDA right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you read the write-ups by investors, they say that this is like the middle of the cycle or something, that this isn't a high point in it. So 
Could be interesting. Yeah. We already have one thing that's very exposed to natural gas in the U.S., though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah next. So so. Yeah. May not fit our portfolio. Uh, next question. How do you guys think about currency over or undervaluation when buying foreign, foreign stocks? And he said that he listened to one of your podcasts mm-hmm. that you did in the past and that how you put off buying how to joinery because you thought that the pound was expensive relative to the dollar. Yeah. So how to joinery is a stock in the U.K., um, and it it does um, you can think of it like a super small Home Depot or something serving just the builders though so it serves um, them on confidential terms to supply things like if you're going to put in a new kitchen or something remodel your kitchen providing cabinets and things like that all yeah. the things that the builder would need does it privately it's great business um, anyone who doesn't know about how joinery you should go look at it now does a great job of explaining the company you know all that. Now, in terms of the currency thing, yes, I thought the pound was overvalued back then. Um, and that's just purchasing price parity, basically. So purchasing price parity is basically the easiest way to think of it is the Big Mac index. You're familiar with the no. economist Big Mac index? No. Okay. So the concept that the Big Mac's like from McDonald's? Yes. So the concept that The Economist had, the, the uh, magazine, is that a Big Mac should cost roughly the same in every country. Okay. If it doesn't cost the same in a country, it's because of differences in the currency. Because the Big Mac isn't being traded across um, uh, borders and things, yeah. right? So uh, you're using local labor. You're using uh, local, somewhat local, um, ingredients and all those things. It's even changed a little bit in each country to meet their tastes and all of that. But basically, you can look at it that way. And so it's a really good indicator that way That's of, interesting. of um, how you do it. every day. Yeah. I never knew that. So I was actually kind of being, I was joking around when I said McDonald's. It is McDonald's. It's absolutely McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Because McDonald's is everywhere. Sure. I mean, in theory, it makes sense. Well, no, that's a huge problem in doing this kind of thing in terms of purchasing power parity. When economists actually do this between things, the problem is the baskets of goods are not the same. I mean, if you've been to other countries, you've been to the United States, and, and you try to compare them, they're not as comparable as a Big Mac in each country. Sure. That actually is an issue. If you say, um, you know, there's certain there's certain countries in which the the quality of some things is much lower than it is in other countries of what they're using. Like, you know, if we were talking about um, uh, in the watch list when we talked about Corellia tobacco or something, yeah. there's not a guarantee that the cigarette quality in all the different countries is the same. Some countries are importing only high-quality cigarettes, mm-hmm. some much lower. And then you have taxes and things. Big Mac is a really easy way to do that. Um, so that's one way of thinking about it. And it tends to be the same – in general, it's not as precise, but in general, the Big Mac Index actually is pretty accurate in matching up with purchasing price parity. So if you go someplace, Denmark or Switzerland or something, and you say, wow, that's a really expensive Big Mac. So if you figure out that I traded my dollars yeah, yeah, for whatever yeah. this currency is, and I just paid $7 for this, yeah. whereas when back home, it's this price, you know, um, then something is off with the currency. And that tends to be true. That's interesting. And it really captures it for very expensive and very cheap ones. Now, there are economic theories about reasons why um, the lower GDP per person that you had in a country should mean that it's okay for you to have um, a, a lower price than you'd expect on purchasing price parity, and then vice versa. So if you had very high GDP. But if you're comparing two countries that have similar um, real GDP per capita, it should be very close. There's no reason really why a Big Mac should cost more in Norway than in New Jersey. They should cost about the same. And if they don't, then something's probably off about the currencies the currency, in yeah. between the two countries, which probably has to do with the issues of interest rates and things like that. Yeah. So um, th- the main thing is purchasing price parity, I'd say, is something that I have in mind. So 
which the simplest way to think of it is what I just said with the Big Mac index, except it's over a wider basket of goods. Um, but and you can find that in different uh, different international organizations uh, publish information about that, whether it's the OECD or something like that. You can find it. Um, so. I would use that, and when it seems really um, unusually high or low uh, versus the dollar, that would be a problem. I invest in Japanese stocks knowing that the yen was overvalued, and it declined while I owned the Japanese stocks and made my returns worse. I could have hedged it, um, and so I've talked about that before. If I made 20% or something, uh, 20 to 30% a year in Japanese stocks, you could have made you know uh, 40 to 60% a year or something for the year or two that I owned it in those stocks if you had hedged the Japanese yen because what happened is Japanese stocks went up a lot while the yen versus the dollar went down a lot. You could do that. In the very long run, I don't think there's good reasons why – a, you would necessarily want to hedge that out from a volatility perspective. Uh-huh. It doesn't have a real relationship that would cause your portfolio to be more volatile, so why do it? Um, two, if you happen to ever be in a country where there's some problem with runaway inflation or something, it's not necessarily a bad thing. That, that in a sense, is a good thing that you own some stuff in other currencies, so it's not bad. And then, um, and then you also have the issue of, like, does it actually add or detract from returns? It actually okay, should— What wrong about— the currency. So like, well, that's the hedge it. And then yeah, that's why people hedge it. There. That's yeah. why people hedge it. And I think they're probably wrong to do that. Uh-huh. So they hedge it so that if they were right, they don't have the experience of regret that I was right about the stock and yet I didn't make money, yeah. right? But in reality, if you make a bunch of different bets in foreign countries over by buying different stocks in foreign countries over decades, I don't think you will come out ahead by hedging. And there will be some cost to hedging. And it'll be a distraction that you have to worry about these things. So in general, my advice would be don't hedge. Um, However, it can be obvious that a currency is overvalued um, or undervalued. And that could continue for a really long period of time. But it's the same way as, like I say, sometimes it was obvious that oil was too expensive at $110 a barrel. Or it was obvious the Fed funds rate was unusually low at 0 to Mm 0.25%. That's what I'm talking about. It was obvious to me in the end that that seemed to be what was happening. Uh, in terms of um, how to join, I was a little concerned with uh, the UK versus the US. It's rarely it, in the time that I've been investing stuff. Only certain countries have had this happen versus the US. A lot of like Northern European type countries and um, Japan. Not a lot of other ones. So uh, it, it occasionally becomes an issue. Uh, you could hedge it, and that may be what people want to do. The other option is just to naturally. Um, try to benefit from it and say, well, uh, companies uh, country, companies in countries that have low uh, currency values versus the U.S. would be attractive places to hunt for a stock, and those with high ones would be places to avoid. So if you look at it and you say, oh, well, you know, this year Mexico looks really attractive in terms of the currency and uh, Switzerland looks unattractive, then you spend more time looking at Mexican companies than Swiss companies, something like that. Long term, there are reasons why a currency could be bad in one country or another, and it just has to do mainly with like their um, things that they would do that would cause their currency to inflate. So, um, and then they're pretty obvious. So, you know, just to, the central bank would like to avoid inflation. It would be a more likely place where you'd want to invest. Um, there are a lot of emerging countries where purchasing price parity might not make that much sense in that you might just want to avoid the currency altogether. Um, but I think that's a bigger issue of more things like whether they would ever put restrictions on people getting capital out of the country and stuff like that. So there are reasons to avoid certain emerging markets, but I don't think it's just because of the currency price. Um, So yeah, it was just that the purchasing power parity 
uh, was telling me that the UK was really overvalued versus the US at that moment. Um, and then that changed uh, with Brexit and things like that after that. Um, and things that changed in the US too. Um, you just had a change in that that got me more comfortable looking at the stock. Um, but it's just outliers. Sometimes, you know, at that moment, the UK might have been in the top 10 or 15 countries in terms of, probably was, in terms of how overvalued they seemed versus the US. Sure. And it's just that there's certain things I avoid that way. So you could hedge it. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I've also talked to people in countries in um, in Canada or in Nordic countries or something about real estate or something. I said, I'm not interested in it because just in terms of the prices, it looks out of line with the long-term trend. That's what I'm talking about with these currencies. You could do it the same way. It just... it. It should be very obvious if you study up on the currency at all that it looks wrong. The easiest way to do that is the Big Mac index, purchasing power parity, things like that. But there are other ways to know long term. What I care about, though, is that the the short term stuff is all momentum and things in terms of these currencies yeah. that people are talking about trading. You don't want to worry about what traders are talking about, about the currencies. You just want to worry about the really long term stuff. And what that is really is just whether the prices are seem normal or there seems to be something that's really wrong. And sometimes there are price differences between countries that are very significant um, in their currencies. And that's some sort of imbalance that's happening. And it will probably correct itself eventually. And you don't know how it will. It's the same thing with oil or something. I had no idea how oil would get down in price or whatever. But if yeah. people can make a lot of money by doing that, they will. In these countries, if people, if it becomes impossible to export from these countries or something, eventually that's going to cause things to happen with their currency, you know? Um, the same things. Th things will come in that will drive it back to a reversion to the mean. Mm -hmm. So that's just the thing to look at long term is whether, and, and honestly, the first place you could go is the Big Mac Index because I think it's online that you can find it. Um, it's easier to understand, whereas tables of purchasing power parity are a little harder to understand. Um, the CIA World Factbook, I think the CIA always puts GDP in both um uh, adjusted to U.S. dollars with purchasing power parity, and then also just uh, according to exchange rates. And when you see a big difference between the two, then you know for that year that there was a big gap. Um, so, yeah, so certain countries come up that way. That's a thing that you see in statistics sometimes where they say some country is very rich versus the U.S. or something. Often yeah. it's not. It's that their currency is highly valued. So they And the reporter just did it using um, uh, exchange rates. So like, say, Denmark or something. It, that's correct if someone in Denmark made all their money in Denmark then came to the U.S. to buy things. Sure. It's not correct if they go about their life in Denmark that they're actually that rich because they have to pay whatever prices are there in Denmark, you know? Mm -hmm. so, it's relative. Yeah. And so you can figure those things out. I, I think everyone should spend very little time worrying about currency, as little as possible. Just yeah. go to the Big Mac Index. <laughs> that's the place to start. Yeah. It's that's cool. I, for you I, I never knew about that. So yeah, just, there's a, there'll be a little graph there. there that'll show yeah. you on the world and what is very expensive and what's so very and cheap. What it what it is here and then what it is all over the world. Yep, and wow. the percentage overvaluation or undervaluation yeah. based on that. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, learn something new every day. <laughs> well, that's a good place to start. That was awesome. That was cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. Um, if you like the podcast, like the work that we're doing, uh, if you give us a rating yeah. review, that helps us out a lot. Obviously, this is free. Um, but that helps spread the word, which obviously Jeff and I love. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844.
Thanks for listening.